Hope you're doing well. As Jordan said, we are having a baptism during first service. Uh, we're glad that you're here. If you haven't picked up one of these yet, I want to invite you to make sure you get one in the lobby. It's a uh, devotional uh, that you can go through the book of James. There's still plenty of them out there. Uh, there's two devotions per week, so really simple to accomplish. Uh, we wrote this in conjunction with going through the book of James. Uh, like if you have a Bible, you can go and open up to James chapter 3, 13. That's where we'll be. Uh, so grab one of these on your way. Just as a, another reminder, um, a way to uh, remember how we want to come to church every single Sunday. I'm going to keep Keep reiterating this over and over and over uh, so that you can remember. We come to church and we remember the four E's. One, we're eager. We're totally, totally eager. We cannot wait to hear from God's word. We're super, super eager to hear from God's word. And we're also super eager to see God's people. So whenever you come, you should think that there's a giving and a receiving in both manners. In regard to God, you are giving God worship and he is giving you the gospel again and reminding you. But also conversely with people, God's people here, there's a giving of encouragement and a giving of love that you're giving to them and a receiving. And you will not ever get that unless you're here. And so you are eager. You can't wait to hear from God. You can't wait to be with God's people. Second, expectant. You really expect every single time you open God's word, that he is going to do something in your heart through his word every, every single Sunday. I would say every day, but certainly every single Sunday. You're expecting God to do something amazing. I mean, it's God's word. So of course it can do something amazing, but you should be expectant. If you're not expectant, it's likely that it won't happen. Eager, expectant. The next one is early, that you want to get here early. This is the most important thing that happens in your life. It's more important than your job, and you certainly get to your job on time, or you won't have a job very long. So you're early. You get here early. You hang out in the lobby. You get coffee, et cetera, et cetera. And last week, and I want to make sure I point this out because this is a North American church, not a remedy church, but a North American church problem. Every Sunday, there's not a Sunday you never miss. I don't miss a Sunday. So since I don't miss a Sunday, you should never miss a Sunday. We should all always be here every single Sunday. There's never a reason that we should be out of, out of town or missing, uh, you know, the couple reasons I know. But on the whole, you want to always be here every single Sunday, eager, expectant, early every Sunday. Um, so those are the four ways we want, to approach, uh, we want to approach here and approach Sunday morning worship. Now, a couple announcements for you, and then we're going to look at James 3. Number one, uh, last week we voted on the budget that starts July 1, and it passed. So the budget, if you want one, it's uh, out there on the info table, or you can go to remedychurch.org slash budget and download the PDF, and that is the budget for next year. Second is on June 22nd, that's a Saturday, Saturday, June 22nd, from 12 to 3, we're having a church-wide summer splash and potluck. There will be bounce houses. Everybody bring your favorite food to share. Uh, there'll be lots of fun, kids-friendly, kids very kid-friendly. Um, make sure you come to that. You can go to Remedy Church, our, our website, remedychurch.org, and click on events. And all the events of things that are happening are coming up. And I'm just telling you what's going on. But the most important thing is, between services... Watch these TVs, and there's scrolling announcements going on that tell you everything that's going on here at Remedy. Watch the scrolling announcements. Um, each week, before we get started, we pray for something local or international, and there's a people group that we have as a church decided to latch on to and pray for continually. They're located in the Horn of Africa. There are some refugees that have moved into Europe, and we've even heard le lately that there are some that are in Georgia. 
So they are, they are getting closer and closer and closer to us. And we've been praying for them for several years now. We're going to pray for them. Uh, the, the pseudonym that we call them by is the Atani. Uh, and so we're going to pray for them. And then we will get started looking at Matthew chapter 3. I'm sorry, James chapter 3, starting at verse 13. 313 down through 410. But uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love, your mercy. Uh, we pray for the Atani. We pray that uh, you would reach them. There's so many in this people group that haven't heard of the gospel. And so we pray that the gospel would reach them and that they would believe, Lord, and that you would use them to be mighty missionaries for your name. Um, we continue to have been lifting them up for so many years, Lord. And uh, we just pray, God, for opportunities one day that we can, we can go to them and share the gospel ourselves. Um, and that those that are already um, doing the work of that, Lord, that you would bless their um, endeavors. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever we read the Bible together, we stand. So if you're able to stand, stand with me. Starting in Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, I keep saying Matthew, James. I'm having flashbacks from going through Matthew for 90 weeks. Um, so James chapter 3, verse 13. I'm going to read from 3.13 to 4.10, to 4.10. So verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from heaven is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It is, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you murder, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So, um, I was going to actually go all the way down through 412, uh, but I just don't have the time. So, uh, if we're looking at 313 to 412, there's three big kind of things that he's doing where he's juxtaposing uh, two different kind of uh, things from worldly wisdom to godly wisdom, etc. So, we're going to take those one by one. And, and the big idea from 413 all the way down to 412 is that God wants us to pursue holiness. This is what pursuing holiness looks like. So, if you're looking at all of it, I didn't read 11 and 12. We're going to get to that next week. That's kind of part two of today. But James is going to juxtapose in each section. So, if you look at 313 to 318, he's going to juxtapose worldly wisdom 
wisdom versus godly wisdom. And 4.1 through 4.10, he's going to juxtapose friends with the world versus friends with God. And then 4.11 and through 4.12, which we're not going to look at, worldly speech versus godly speech. So over and over, he's going to juxtapose what the world looks like and what God looks like in three different ways in this text. Now, we're not going to do 11 and 12 today. That'll, that'll be next week. Um, and he's going to show worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. He's going to show being friends with the world and being friends with God. And he's going to show worldly speech and godly speech. And all three of these, each one of those sections is pointing us how to pursue holiness in our lives in, in unique, different ways. Now, all over the Bible, you can have texts that show you how to pursue holiness. But in these, we're going to see these specific ways regarding wisdom and friendship and the way that we speak. So um, we know from James chapter 1, verse 5, if you remember back in the very first week, he told us this in James 1, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously, generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith. So we're told in James 1.5 that wisdom is given by God to us as a gift. And now in James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, that first section, James is going to delineate between heavenly godly wisdom and earthly worldly wisdom. I would even say, because the Bible says, demonic wisdom. Because wisdom can dress itself up to look like wisdom, but it's actually demonic. It's from the devil. And so he's wanting us to see the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Earthly wisdom can seem helpful. It can seem good. It can seem like it's helpful and correct and right. However, it's not. It's actually, if you look at the very last word of verse 15, it is demonic. In the very middle of verse 14, it is self-serving. And this is not uh, godly wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. And so uh, we don't want to have worldly wisdom. We don't want to have earthly wisdom, even though it might seem right in our eyes sometimes. It's not godly wisdom. It's not wisdom that comes down from heaven. And James is warning us to see. Now, how can it be seen? If, if someone were to come to you and say, hey, this person over here, he might be pretty wise. What do you think? And you would say, I don't know. Let me, let me figure it out. The way that most of us, whenever we would look at someone to try to figure out if they're wise is we'd want them to talk for a while, tell us their thoughts on things. And if they tell us their thoughts on things and how that they would do stuff, then we would say, oh, they must be wise. What they're saying makes sense. James is telling us that's not the way you should do it. You don't largely look at intellect to find out if someone's wise. Look what he says. It's right there. Who is wise and understanding among you? Verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So the primary way that we are to discern if people are wise or not, it's not primarily through conversation. It's primarily through watching one's behavior. James says, look at their behavior, not their intellect. Look at what they do. Because people can say all kinds of stuff. What they're doing with their lives. It's counterintuitive, maybe, because you might think that, well, the smart people, they're the wise people. Not necessarily. The people that are living their life in good order and good conduct in the way that honors Christ, those are the people that are wise. And it has nothing to do with IQ. So we need to look at the way that they live. So when we're seeking people for wisdom, you don't seek the smartest. You don't seek the most intellectual. You don't seek the most well-spoken. You look at the people that are living their lives according to the way that God has ordered that we should live our lives. And that's who you get wisdom from. doesn't matter how smart they are. Look at how they live to see what's wise. So what, what, now he's going to tell us what, 
what godly wisdom looks like and what worldly wisdom looks like. Uh, Wisdom from above comparing to unwise people. The people that are unwise are the people that are earthly, uh, worldly wisdom. They're jealous, they're selfish, they brag about themselves, they're liars, they're unearthly, they're demonic, etc. You can see that in verses 14 through 16. Um, Yeah, there you go. Describing worldly wisdom, you can see. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, uh, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is the wisdom that comes down from above. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So this is describing for us what earthly wisdom ultimately results in and what it looks like. Uh, you, you boast about yourself, you are not calm, you are not meek towards others, uh, you, you might call yourself a Christian, but it's likely a misnomer. It's not who you are. You don't act wisely. You're, un, you're unspiritual. You're demonic, as it says. It's actually from hell itself, this wisdom. And so the motivation behind this kind of wisdom is always self-serving primarily. That's what it says when you have selfish ambition. There are people that do this. They're, je- they're jealous people. They're selfish people. Then their life is also full of disorder and all kinds of evil. They are... Uh, following in the path of what would be worldly wisdom. That's what it looks like. Now, sometimes it's difficult to discern, but nevertheless, you can look at people's lives uh, and decide if you need to get wisdom from them. But the first thing that you should do is not look at their intellect, but look at the way they live. Conversely, in verse 17 and 18, he describes for us godly wisdom. He tells us what that looks like. And again, all this is under the heading of not being... uh, being the person that pursues holiness, not having, not having worldly wisdom in our lives, but instead godly wisdom. So we can look at 17 and 18 and see what it says. It says, but the wisdom from above, not the wisdom that's from below, but the wisdom from above, not earthly wisdom, but heavenly wisdom, godly wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. Don't miss this one. Open to reason. Open to reason. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. And whenever you have those things, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if you're really wise, wisdom from above, it looks like heaven. Their wisdom is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle. You actually listen to your spouse or your friend or your roommate. Whenever they make points, even though you disagree, you're open to reason. You're full of mercy. You don't get angry. You don't uh, say sarcastic remarks to them. You're full of Mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere, pure uh, wisdom here, it, it excludes hypocrisy. It excludes selfish ambition. You're peaceable because you are wanting to take away contentiousness. People who are full of mercy, they're benevolent people. They want to help people. They want to give away. Um, they desire to put others' needs in front of their own. This is what godly wisdom looks like. Proverbs 2 describes for us uh, what wisdom from God looks like. In Proverbs 2 verses 1 through 8, it says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it, all of its hidden treasures, then 
You will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth. Come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. And so the Lord provides for us wisdom if we will seek it from him and ask for it. And he wants to give it to us. And when we do, whenever we practice wisdom, you can see in verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown. The wisdom from God that he gives us results then in righteous living. It results in us living in such a way that produces what is right. We do the things that God would want to have him have us do in our lives. When we become a person of wisdom, we... And the person around us that we're interacting with both become more righteous, more Christ-like, if you will. We become people of peace. And so uh, if we aren't practicing this kind of wisdom, if we're not, if we're practicing earthly wisdom and backbiting and selfish ambition, well, that, that's what leads us into the next section. I know in, in here you have chapter divisions, but, but 4.1, why are there quarrels among you is put right there in that little section in 3, 13 through 18 on purpose. Because if we aren't practicing godly wisdom and we're practicing worldly wisdom, well, that's going to result here in 4.1. When we see in 4.1, there's fights and there's quarrels. You can see 4.1, James poses a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Likely, the worldly wisdom that was permeating the community that James writing to was happening and therefore the, the believers we're having quarrels and fights. And so that brings us to the next section here. So we've seen pursuing holiness and what it looks like to have God, godly wisdom instead of worldly wisdom. And now in this next section, he's going to sh- show us what the difference is between friends with the world being versus being friends with God. And then uh, verses 1 through 5, I think there's another one. Verses 1 through 5, it looks like what look, being the friends with the world looks like. There it is. And then in verses 6 through 10. Uh, friends with God looks like. And so we have this question that he opens up with. What in 401, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, what's wrong with our fill in the blank? What's wrong with our marriages? What's wrong with our friendships? What's wrong with our etc.? Why are people arguing? Why are people fighting with each other? Why are people talking behind each other's backs whenever they're practicing this worldly wisdom? Why are they doing that? Answer, is it not that your passions are at war within you? It's because you're at war. All your desires within you are desiring the wrong things. And when that's the case, you're having expressed in quarrels and fights among you with other people. These passions aren't for God. um, And if they are, very little of them are for God. Instead, we are uh, having a battle within us to be more like the world instead of our desires to be more like Jesus. This is whenever we experience earthly, ungodly wisdom expressing itself out inside of our communities, inside of your marriages or inside of your relationships with your roommates or your parents, etc., and you're having continual quarrels and continual fights, likely it's because you are having um, passions within you, sinful desires rise up to the top, and they want to win the battle over Jesus. 
You could say, why? Why would this happen inside of me? This isn't just for unbelievers. This is for believers. Why is this happening inside of me? This might sting, but likely it's because we find ourselves spending, if we were to be honest, far more time with the world than with Jesus. That's why it happens. If we're honest, if we take a a summation of the time of our day, And look at what we think on, look at what we meditate on, look at what we read, look at what we memorize, look at what's going on in our prayer life. We find ourselves knowing and being and having far more time in the world than we are with Jesus. So how is this happening? You can see it in verse 2. How is this happening? Your desire, you desire and you do not have so you murder. So the reason why first this happens is because you desire something. You cannot have it. And when you cannot have it, you murder. And you say, I've never murdered. That's not what I have ever done that. Well, the Greek word here can also mean envy. You envy. And so you have something, you desire something, and you can't have it. And when you can't have it, you envy. And as Matthew 5 tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, that this is the same. And so what's happening is when you can't get something, you envy it. You can also see uh, why this is happening. The second reason is you covet and cannot obtain it. When you covet and you cannot obtain something, when somebody has something that you can't have or somebody has a, something happening in their life that, wish that, that you wish you could have, you don't get it. And so immediately, whenever you're practicing worldly wisdom, me too, we fight and we quarrel. And if we love Christ more than we love worldly possessions, then we wouldn't envy, we wouldn't covet, we wouldn't desire, we wouldn't do that. And then further, why don't you have what you want? Why is it that you want these things and not Christ things? You can see it in the next little section there. In the last little part of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask, verse 3, and you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So when you ask God for stuff, when you're in these middle of fights, the things that you ask for are not godly things. They're just things that help you sin more. And so you don't ask for correct things. We don't have because we don't ask correctly. And this brings me to maybe this is a bit of a side note, but it's important. Uh, A long time ago, I heard John Piper say this, and it brings us back to something that helps us understand what the point of prayer is. Um, If we really believe that right now life is easy, then we won't pray like we ought. Focused, this is what he says, focused wartime prayer is an essential part of our assault on the strongholds of Satan. Now, you might think, Fudd's jumping pretty big here and saying, things about the devil and Satan. Let's just make sure we understand when we're looking at this big thing, 315 has already told us that we're fighting the demonic and we're going to see in 4-7 that we're supposed to resist the devil. So in context, we should realize that Satan has a massive desire to destroy you and me. He hates us. He hates the church, he hates worship, he hates marriages, he hates evangelism, he hates discipleship, he hates whenever we reach out to people so that we can befriend them and be nice to them, he hates benevolence, he hates um, the body, he hates spiritual gifts, he hates all of it. And if we don't realize that prayer has been given to us because we are constantly in this war with Satan, there's not ever a moment where you're not in war with Satan. 
This is what he says. You don't have because you don't ask. Focused wartime prayer is an essential part of our assault on the strongholds of Satan. Piper goes on. I have said it before that God has given prayer to us as a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom for the butler to bring us another pillow for the den. Meaning, you are not in your living room sipping on a drink and saying, God, I'm kind of uncomfortable here. Could you bring me another pillow? And he's not the butler with white gloves that says, here it is for you. That's not what's going on. Right now, every moment of every day, you're like D-Day, running the beach of Normandy. Bombs are going off everywhere. Satan wants to destroy you. He, he hates us. He hates our marriages. He hates everything about us. Bombs are going off and we are grabbing walkie-talkie prayers and saying, God, the bombs are going off. Come now and help. And until we realize that's the life that we are constantly in, that we're never in the den, but we are always in wartime settings trying to run away and flee and resist and kill our tempter, then we'll never know what prayer is for. You'll never, as he says, you'll never know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. So focused wartime prayer is an essential part of our assault on the strongholds of Satan. Prayer is not a domestic intercom for the butler, God, to bring us another pillow for the den. Instead, we are in war and God has given us prayer to defend against the strongholds of Satan. Satan wants to destroy us. And so when we're talking about the pursuit of holiness, we're looking at these first five verses. Prayer is one of the key ways for us to not be friends with the world. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask for stuff just so you can send more. Just so that you can be more easy and more comfortable. Just so you can have a pillow in the den. Rather than protection on the battlefield. And that's why he looks at us. This, he's talking to Christians here. So I'm saying us. I'm, I, if, I say, if I say the second person, I mean the third. I mean us, not you. That's why in verse 4 he says, You adulterous people! This is very, very, very strong language, serious language that James is employing here. All throughout the Old Testament, we have imagery like Hosea, etc., of God telling the people of God, the Israelites, that they're adulterous people. And James is employing that Old Testament language and bring it into the New Testament to the church and saying, you are being adulterous. He's hearkening back to that Old Testament language and saying, you are being adulterous when you have friendship with the world, when you practice enmity and hostility and hatred towards God. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world or makes himself, he makes himself an enemy of God. Don't miss that he's writing towards Christians. Or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says, this is a very, very weird verse here. There's lots of debate on how to translate this little phrase here. He yearns jealously, uh, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Lots of debate on how that looks. Uh, I th in your Bible, it should be a lowercase s, not an uppercase s. I think that's the right call. 
Um, God gives us the Holy Spirit, but before we have the Holy Spirit, we still have our spirit. It's kind of like our soul. It's kind of like something in us. And he, he longs for that spirit, not the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit always does what's righteous. He, the spirit that's in us, he jealously yearns for that spirit that he has made to, that, to dwell in us. He, he jealously longs for it. In other words, he deeply desires for the spirit that he's put inside of us, that, he, that dwells in us, not yet the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's in there too, that he deeply desires for it to have deep affections for Jesus. He desires that we would want to love and serve Christ and live lives that, that do that. L- let me ask you this way. I'll ask you this way. Right now, where you are in your walk with Jesus, if I were to come up to you and say, okay, um, 10 is red hot, on fire for Jesus, walking, I mean, just storming the gates of hell, killing it for Jesus, you're red hot on fire. One is freezing cold. You barely ever think about it. Where would you rate yourself in the one through 10? Likely, most of you would say, well, man, I, I'm not, I want to be a 10. I'm not a 10. I'm not, I'm not a one. I want to be a 10, but man, if I'm honest, I'm not a 10. I'm probably going to be somewhere in, in the middle part. Uh, I, it's not exactly what I would want to be, but I, I'm probably somewhere in there if I'm being honest. Well, we should hear things like this and say, uh, if I am at a five or a six or whatever, and we hear this particular verse, then we should think about where we are. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you would either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. If most of us, by our own honest reflection, would say, I'm pretty much in the middle, Revelation 3, 15, 16 says, I can't stand it that you're there. I wish that you would be a one or 10. Five makes me sick. It makes me want to vomit. Now, I'm hearing that for myself too, right? I'm not just trying to step on your toes and bash you over the head. But nevertheless, what what he's saying to us here is when we find ourselves just lukewarm, floating through, prayers just are butler intercom, rather than life is war, bombs are going off, we, we want to really strive as hard as we can to live for Christ, then we are friends with the world. We're practicing living friends with the world. Now, here's the good news. That's a lot of law. I've given you a lot of law. The law is meant to do what it just did. It's made to make you think, oh my goodness, whatever am I going to do? Who's going to save me from this body of death? (laughs) I feel hopeless. Well, James is going to give us gospel now. And you need to hear this. It's okay to hear law because it leads you to reflection and saying where I have been and what I am doing is not good, but I never can. I'm not, this isn't a, so strap it up by your bootstraps and get going. It's you can't. And so you need Jesus. Here it is. This is what it is for us. Verse six. Oh, these first five words are so good, but he gives more grace. How much grace do you need? I need about this much. Okay. He gives more than that. Oh, I I need a whole lot. Okay, he's going to do that, and he's going to give you more. Whatever it is you need, you're not going to outsend the grace of God. No matter what it is, he's going to give you what you need and more and more and more and more and more. This is how one writer says it, and it's so good. Um, What comfort is there in this verse? James chapter 4, verse 6. 
it tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect to our needs. He always has more grace at his hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put ourselves first, we cannot forfeit our salvation for there is always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he has never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. Don't miss that. His patience, I, I find myself when, I, when I'm walking through life and I'm just not where I should be, I just feel like God's done with me. I mean, he's given me so many shots. He's just done with me. I might as well quit ministry and just go cut grass. Not if you cut grass is not bad. I just find that I'm an introvert and I would actually enjoy that because being around people makes me nervous. So like, I just want to go do what I would like, which is cut grass. And so he's done with me in ministry. He's certainly, I've exhausted his patience. Nonsense. Nonsense. Verse six, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Listen. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. I think of myself as a father, how exhausted my patience gets at just about 10 minutes after the kid's not listening. God's patience is never exhausted with you. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. Praise God. He gives more grace. Now, here's the thing. It's the design of God when he gives us more grace and more grace and more grace that our love affair with the world ceases. We don't find the world attractive anymore whenever the lavish grace of God has been given to us. When we have truly experienced more grace after more grace after more grace after more grace, we see the beauty of that and our love affair with the world is vanquished. We don't want it. Augustine says, give me the grace to do as you command and command me to do what you will. So he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, for those of you that when you hear he gives more grace and that's all you need and you're like, I got it. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to pursue holiness just knowing that he lavishes me grace. I don't need practical steps. I got it. I'm a, I'm a feeler. And since I'm a feeler, that's all I need. Now I feel this. I love it. And I'm going to live in it. But if you're not like that and you're more like not a feeler like me and you need, all right, what, is, what does it look like? Give me some, give me some, give me some steps. James is going to do that for you. He's going to give you six practical steps on what it, looks, make, what it looks like to be friends with God here in this text. So you can see him right here in this, in this text. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's, that's one way that being friends with God, it looks like submitting yourself to God. Let's say it this way. Whenever you are absolutely enamored with the grace of God that he just gives more grace and more grace and more grace, and you're like, what is my right response? Number one, submit yourself to him. Just submit yourself to him. This next one, by the way, blows my mind. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Look at this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That 
blows my mind because every other text that I've, if you notice, that I've been reading over the last, I don't know, few months, it always says, flee, 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 flee. It's, it's telling us, get out of there. Run away, run away. Here, James is saying, resist the devil and his temptations and he will flee from you. As, and how's that possible? I think as the grace of God washes over you wave after wave and you're just absolutely amazed at how much grace God gives. He takes the initiative. He never grows weary. He never runs out of patience with you. That you don't want to sin that you don't even have to flee. You can just resist temptation and the devil's like, this guy's a lost cause to try to sin. This girl's not gonna ever do it. I'm going somewhere else. But you have to really get verse six, right? But nevertheless, resist. Here's another one. Here's another one what it looks like. A practical step. Submit, resist temptation. Next one, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This, this drawing near looks like repentant drawing near. It's not just Hey, I'm here. Let's, let's talk. It's repentant drawing near. He's God and you're not. <laughs> Draw near to him, his holiness, in the way that's appropriate. Draw near to him. But nevertheless, draw near. The way that God has designed for us to draw near, let's, I, I want to make sure we get this, is not some mystical, experiential fashion. It's this right here. The way that God has designed for us to draw near to him is through his word. It's not mysticism. It's not experiential. It's through his word. You want to draw near to God the way, the way, not a way, the way that he has designed for you to do it is through his word. Read the Bible if you want to draw near to God. It's not mysticism and experiential stuff. It's the Bible. The Bible is the way that God has designed for us to draw near to him. So that's another way it looks. Draw near to God. And here's this amazing promise that he gives you. When you do that, you know what he does? He draws near to you. Now, you can get into the theological implications that he's always there, etc. Nevertheless, you, you know that you feel closer to God as you, as you get closer to him. Also, you can see it here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Hands and hearts, inside and outside. Basically, what he's telling us is uh, outwardly alter. If we're looking at the outward part about our hands, this is outwardly amend, alter, adjust, justify, or modify, revise, make changes, improve, make corrections in your life on the outside. Do the outward necessary stuff by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do those things. All, cleanse your hands, but purify your hearts. Make this decision. When we see purify your hearts, I, I'm thinking about the inward change. Remember the one through 10? I'm not gonna be number five anymore. It's time to be in fuego. It's time to be number 10, on fire all the time. I, I, I kill sin with everything I can. I tell everybody I can I know about Jesus. There's no longer a fear. There's no longer a messing around. I, I have decided on the inside I'm going to be cleansed. And now every decision is an on fire decision for Jesus, whatever it is. That's, that's what it looks like practically. And then it has this interesting thing here in verse 9 where it tells us to be wretched, mourn and weep. You're like, wait, if things are happy and now we're sad. Why are you telling me to be sad? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And you're like, wait, well, why did all of a sudden you make me tell me to be sad? It just means this. Um, treat sin seriously and have real repentance. That's kind of the basic idea of it. Alvin Plantica writes this about how things have changed in regard to sin, our view of sin, 
This is what he writes. The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled it, uh, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sin. A man would lose his temper one night. He might wonder and wonder if he could even go to the Lord's Supper the next morning. A woman who for years envied her more attractive, intelligent sister might wonder if this sin now is actually threatening her, her very salvation. But the shadow in our days has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation, accusation of you have sinned is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. In other words, treat sin seriously, have real repentance Sin's no laughing matter. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Don't laugh about it. Sin should bother us. And then verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Trust God completely. Trust him completely. This is what friendship with God looks like. All of it is predicated on verse six. But he gives more grace. And this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ willingly left heaven, came down, lived the life that you never and I could have never lived for us on our behalf, went to the cross willingly and took our punishment as we were supposed to receive death. He took death for us and then his righteousness, his perfect life was therefore imputed or given to us at the moment where we confess that we're sinners and we trust in Christ. I want to be a follower of yours, Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. He gives us grace. He forgives us. And then for the rest of our life, more grace, more grace, all bought and paid for at the cross. Right now, you might think that your life is absolutely spiraling out of control and there's no hope for you to really pursue holiness the way this text is saying. And I'm saying, that's nonsense. Of course it is. The cross is way bigger than you think. There's no way that I could ever be in Fuego on 10. Yes, there is right now. He gives more grace than you could ever conceive, than you could ever imagine. Right now, this group of people could set Rock Hill on fire could absolutely set Rock Hill on fire with prayer as our only hope, our, our, our wartime walkie-talkie walking out into this world every week. We could set Rock Hill on fire because he gives more grace, not just to us, but to every person in this city if we call on them to repent and trust Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I... Uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for difficult texts that um, certainly challenge us. I pray that everyone here has received the word with grace. And that if I uh, was too harsh, that that would be looked past to the truth of your word the grace of Jesus would be put on display. You're far more uh, loving and caring than I am. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be seen. I pray more than anything, Lord, that we would never all, any of us would ever get over the fact that you give more grace, that you are so kind and so generous to us, and that over and over and over you give us grace. And that would be our driving factor, the way that we cannot even imagine. (laughs) 
that we could ever live without it. Thank you so much for it. We love you. 